listeners, it's Representative Liz Olson and Representative Jamie Long. And we are back for another edition of the Minnesota Values Podcast. And today we are lucky to have Representative John Lush, author of two of our Minnesota Values Plan bills, the uh, House File 11, which is Earn Sick and Safe Time, and House File 4, which is the Pharmaceutical Price Gouging. And House File 11, I think, makes it on the spinal tap rule, as uh, the speaker said, of making sure we're getting to the top 10 bills. It goes to 11. That's right. (laughs) So, uh, Representative Lesh, tell us a little bit about uh, your district and what the place you call home. The the district that I that I'm in I come from District 66B and that's in St. Paul it includes portions of the uh, North End, the East Side, uh, Hamlin Midway and the Como Park neighborhoods and we live in my family and I we live in Como Park we've got me my wife Melissa daughter Alice who's 18 and a two year old uh, named Eleanor but she calls herself Lulu and then one on the way who we don't know yet but whom Eleanor has named Chicken. And we all live uh, in Como Park. We like to visit the zoo. Um, and uh, Como Park is really kind of the jewel uh, of St. Paul, uh, let alone my district. And we've got all kinds of fun stuff there. In fact, there is actually a ski hill in Como Park, along with a golf course and everything else. And, and it's got a tow rope and everything. You actually ski on Mount Como. We call it Mount Como. So that's a little about my district. Well, that is wonderful to know. A uh, little tidbit from John Lesh about his district. So uh, also you survived uh, the first deadline week. So congratulations, Mr. Chair, um, getting through that. And we're glad to have you here. So let's dive right into the bills you've been working on. Um, one that's incredibly important and I personally have heard a lot about in my district is the earn sick and safe time. Uh, this is a big issue for families all across Minnesota. So can you share a little bit about what's in that bill? Yes. So uh, first, uh, earn sick and safe time is the product of a bill that uh, I first introduced in 2007. Um, and that bill was just called um, paid sick days. Um, and that's the core of what the bill is, paid sick days. Listen, if you're um, sick on the job, um, you should be able to take uh, time off with um, having accrued some time like most of us get. Um, but 36% of Minnesotans don't have the opportunity to take time off uh, when they're sick from their job. Um, and it's probably not a surprise to most folks out there that that 30, 36%, the vast majority of them are the ones that we really need to take time off when they're sick. These are people who, who take care of your kids. Um, they're folks who handle your food, the people on the other side of the sneeze guard at Subway, okay, who are coughing in your spinach. Okay, we need those people to not come to work when they're sick for obvious reasons, not just for their benefit, but for ours. So this bill makes sure that all those folks have access to accrue just one hour of earned sick leave for every 30 hours that are worked. Um, but it also allows you to use that sick time if you've got a sick parent or a sick kid um, or if you've been beat up by domestic abuse. You know, that's why we call it earn sick and safe time, okay? Or you get beat up uh, uh, and, and thrown out of your place uh, from domestic abuse and you got to find a new apartment. It gives you take half a day to go out and find a new apartment, things like that. Um, we think the bill is common sense. Uh, it's backed by a broad coalition of supporters, um, as well as having the uh, a huge, huge uh, support rate among both Republicans and Democrats in the state of Minnesota. 
That's a little fun fact that actually the first time I ever met you back before I was a legislator was you unveiled uh, this bill in Duluth and at our Duluth public, I think it was at our library or some public space because Southern St. Louis County where Duluth is had some of the worst rates for people um, not being able to take time off work that they didn't have access to this benefit. So, you know, thank you for bringing this bill forward. And I know this really impacts my community. And one of the things I remember, even though this was many years ago, I remember a speaker at the press conference telling a really powerful story about what this meant for her family. So I'm imagining from 2007 to now, you've heard a lot of stories. Can you um, share one that's been incredible, you know, has had an impact on you? Absolutely. Uh, one, one that I know of is a, uh, this was probably right around the time when I first introduced the bill, um, a young uh, constituent of mine uh, who worked at a local fast food restaurant in the city of St. Paul. Um, and uh, she got sick, couldn't come to work, and she showed up um, the next day for her next. She called in probably two hours in advance saying, I can't come in. And she uh, returned the next day to the shift that she was scheduled for and found out that she had been fired for not coming into work. And she, and she said to the manager, but I called you and told you that I wasn't come in. And the manager said, yeah, I know. Yeah, you called and told me, but you know, it wasn't good enough. Um, you're fired. You were fired. So it is still, it is legal. And that law has not changed. You, they, you can still be fired for not being able to come to work because you were sick. That's one story that really motivated me because she had a family to feed. She was the primary income earner in her family. And because she got sick, uh, that set her back. Um, so it took her three more weeks to get to find another job. By that time, she could not make rent, um, and she got kicked out of her apartment because she missed rent and didn't pay by the sixth. So now she's homeless. Now we've got a homelessness problem on top of it. And she has two kids that she's flopping on couches in different places in Maplewood, Little Canada, and Shoreview with relatives, um, and waiting a few more months to try to find housing. Uh, hopefully her car doesn't break down. Um, and because her partner... Uh, had an illness, she was having to pull double duty on making sure that that, that angle was taken care of too. It's, it's pieces like this that um, when a manager says something like, you know what, it's not my problem, you didn't show up, there are downstream effects for our society that we end up having to take care of. Um, it's a lot easier to, to say to these employers, listen, we know most of you do the right thing and are responsible about this. It's time for all of you to do the right thing because it's costing the rest of us because you're not anting up um, and doing your part. And one of the reasons this bill is in our top, well, 11, is because we really, what we have found in talking to Minnesotans all across the state is Minnesotans care about one another. And I think your story really illustrates this care we have for, for one another and how this is a piece of that. Um, and one of the things that I know you have is a really strong coalition of different stakeholder groups working on this. Can you share a little bit about some of the groups that have been really working on this and the, you know, what it's been like in committee and, and some of the work behind the scenes that's been happening too? Absolutely. So um, some of our stronger, strongest supporters have been Isaiah, SEIU, um, UFCW uh, was there from the beginning um, back when no one else was helping out. And um, they're not as, you know, as big as some of the other unions who aren't in a position to help as much, but um, they were there from the beginning. Um, uh, Take Action Minnesota um, is also a coalition member. Um, these groups uh, understand exactly what you were just saying, Liz, which is 
we come together and we take care of each other. Um, they were also pivotal in making sure that we included the safe time component. Uh, so um, some of the folks uh, that, that advocated, like um, uh, Minnesota Coalition for Battered Women, um, Domestic Abuse Advocacy Project, are all, are all folks who understand the need that this safe time uh, presents a, a real quandary for some of these women and men, for that matter, who are victims of domestic abuse. So they were pivotal in putting that forward. Um, but they, the unions and organized labor in particular uh, has been really good at offering the muscle and the arguments we need to push back against big business. The corporations who say, oh, you know, this is going to raise everyone's prices. We just can't do this. You know, every major jurisdiction in the nation that has done this you go back to them two years later and they say, so is this a big problem? They're like, yeah, no, it, it hasn't been a problem. It, 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 okay, we complained about it and we still have to fill out a form once in a while, so it's a pain. But in reality, everyone's winning. Okay, and so labor has provided the, the clout, the muscle. Um, and also one of those arguments they offered was the, the presenteeism argument. So when we first started bringing this, I think the number was uh, $6 billion annually is lost by presenteeism. So when I show up um, sick from the flu last week to carry my bill and go <coughs> <coughs> and cough on all of you and everyone else gets sick and then no one else can show up. And <laughs> I mean, that's a $6 billion a year cost to employers. Mm -hmm. And employers are seeing that too. They're seeing that on the, on the bottom line in the back end right now that by offering folks these opportunities, they actually win in the long run because of greater productivity. I think what you have painted is a picture of not just the economic case, but you have painted a really beautiful picture of the kind of state I want to live in, um, where people have this benefit that we can live healthier, more productive lives. And I'm really excited to see this bill continue to travel and, and become law. So thank you for working on it. Excellent. Thank you. So the uh, other bill we're talking about today, uh, Representative Lesh, is House File 4. We uh, affectionately call it the price gouging bill. So tell us a little bit about uh, about this one. Well, the first thing about it, Jamie, is it's the anti-price gouging bill. <laughs> Good point. So we don't like price gouging. Good correction. We don't like pharmaceutical companies to price gouge. Um, <clears throat> this bill was brought up, a version of it, I, I brought it um, in two years previous when Martin Shkreli um, jacked up the price of that AIDS drug um, by 5,000%. And now it's not, you know, an AIDS drug per se. It's an anti something viral. It, it, one of the, one of the complications related to HIV AIDS, um, it, it addresses that, um, very well, uh, very effectively for an affordable price, uh, for people that are suffering from that, that horrendous, uh, ailment. Um, and what he did is he got himself, uh, the, the, the rights to it. He bought the rights to it and he jacked up the price 5,000% just because he could. Now, Martin Shkreli didn't do anything to um, invest in the development of this drug. He didn't um, pay any researchers or hedge fund that, that paid the salaries of the researchers who found out how they could make this work. He didn't, he didn't participate in the oversight of the clinical trials to determine its viability. He merely picked it up once it was FDA approved on the market, saw the difference between the demand for it uh, and what he could get for it, 
and he bought it and jacked up the price just because he could. That's price gouging. So if you, if you see, and, and to a certain extent, you know, we have no problem with anyone who comes in and wants to make a profit on a drug uh, and reap the benefits of, you know, the, the risk that they put in, not just the effort they put in, but also the risk. There, is, there, is, there are rewards associated with risk as well, okay? But in this case, the public has gotten nothing, zero, out of what someone like Martin Shkreli has done. Uh, and that's a problem. And you see this also with uh, things like insulin, where people are going from, you know, paying tens of dollars to hundreds of dollars for a vial of insulin that you need to survive. And uh, because insulin is a biologic, these uh, pharmaceutical companies are able to um, constantly change um, the makeup of the insulin in order to keep it off of, uh, you know, generic status. Um, so you can't have generic insulin uh, because they keep re-upping it. That's that's wrong because pharmaceutical companies see in these people patients who have to have this product. Like you are, or I need water, or I need Coca-Cola. Um, that's my sound of my Coca-Cola for you in podcast land. I need Coca-Cola. Most people need water. <clears throat> but folks who need insulin have to have it and to exploit them for that is just wrong. And so that's what I think we're, we're partnering um, with the coalition as well as with the Attorney General Keith Ellison, who I think is going to be on top of this very effectively to ensure that if you're going to, uh, if you're going to sell these pharmaceuticals to the public who need them, you're going to be accountable for their costs. And to your point about the inability for a lot of people to have an option here, right? These drugs are life-saving drugs, drugs that people are dependent on for their quality of life or uh, dealing with disease and illness. Uh, I have a friend and former coworker who was taking the Martin Scarelli drug. And when she had the price jack jacked up 700% or something like that, one month it was one price, the next month it was 700% more. She had to figure out a way to help cover that. So that is, I think everybody would agree, fundamentally unfair, but it's also really dangerous for a lot of folks who are having to deal with these prices. We've heard some really sad stories about the impact of insulin prices going up. Are there any that any um, drugs or individuals that kind of stick with you as you've thought about the impact that this is having on Minnesotans? Absolutely. Um, you know, we've, ha we've had um, several testifiers come forward and talk about the impact that this had on their lives. And there are several people whose family members have died. And in fact, one uh, member of SCIU, um, his child uh, was trying to ration his insulin after the price got jacked up unreasonably. Um, and they got the call saying, your, your son has died. He was in his 20s. Um, he was just off of their, their health plan, um, trying to make a go of it. Uh, and he died because of what these pharmaceutical companies are doing um, as a direct result of what they were doing because he could not afford um, their extortion, essentially, is what this is. Um, they know that he needs it. They know that he'll pay whatever price that he has to for it, and they do not care if there are some people who can't. If some people slip down the drain, all they have to worry about is their quarterly share price. And by the way, that is, that's law. 
you know, unless you are, are, are designed as a public benefit corporation, um, the only thing you are accountable to is your shareholders and the price and maximizing their profit. And if you take anything else into consideration, your shareholders can and will sue you for doing that, and they will win because you didn't want a kid to die. So therefore, it's incumbent on us as legislators to have these laws in place that prevent them from doing that. Because, because if not, these, these pharmaceutical companies will say, um, the law requires that we operate this way by price gouging. And if we don't operate this way, we will be sued and we will win. And they're correct, unless we have these laws in place. We're recording this on uh, Tuesday the 19th. And uh, last night, Representative Olson's bill on opioids was up on the floor. We heard a really powerful story from Representative Hamilton about the uh, MS drugs that he has to take and some of the increases that that he's seen. I don't know, Representative Olson, if you have thoughts on, in the opioid bill context that you've been working on, some of the impacts of these enormous price increases. Yeah, I mean, we've seen that prices increase on opioids, you know, oxycodone and other drugs have gone up, you know, dramatically in price. And we've seen profits, you know, just huge profits. And we have seen no responsibility, I think, to Representative Lesh's point that there isn't anything that that makes them accountable to Minnesota or the damages that have been done with these drugs in particular. There are other drugs um, that we're talking about here, but around opioids, it was in particular that we just really didn't have, you know, for being able to profit off of something this big, but not being able to have a responsibility. You can, you can, you can celebrate the good of what your product does, but you also then have to acknowledge when it has risk and it has things that damage. And so that's part of this too, is I think as a caucus, uh, we're all coming together to talk about these these companies and what they've done to the state and what they've done to people we care about and asking them to come to the table in different ways. So Representative Lesh, what are, what are some of the mechanisms that this bill will use to make sure we're holding these companies accountable? Well, this, uh, first of all, this bill, House File 4, um, it states that if your, um, if your drug that you produce, manufacture, is an essential drug for people, meaning essentially that they need it to survive. Um, and there's a, there's a list uh, by which the uh, Commissioner of, of Health of the state of Minnesota is able to add uh, drugs to a list to determine that they're, they're essential. And this AIDS drug, AIDS drug would be on it. Insulin would be on it because they're essential. You need them to survive. Um, then what happens is if, they're, if the price of those drugs is increased by 50%, a flag goes up and it gets sent out to the attorney general. And the attorney general examines and says, hold on a second, do you have a reasonable market-based justification for this price increase? And if you do not, the attorney general will sue you um, for uh, doing that and make sure that, that the price of that drug can be affordable, but then also exact some level of penalty for tr trying to sneak one past the goalie um, and feather in your own nest at the public's expense. So it heavily relies upon the willingness uh, of the attorney general to examine that, and it authorizes them to, it also authorizes the attorney general to take legal action against companies. Um, and one reason why that's really, really important is because members out there may think, oh, we're legislators and we, you know, 
can we're powerful and we can get things done and enact laws. But I'll tell you what, when you propose a bill like this, pharma lobbyists come out of the woodwork. They crawl out from under every rock, behind every corner, and they find all kinds of procedural reasons to kill a bill like this so that they're not held accountable. And in the courts, it's much more difficult for a big corporation to hide the ball because the judge makes them accountable, the evidence makes them accountable, and the rules make them accountable, and they cannot just dump lobbyists into the Capitol and run roughshod over good policy. So you aren't working on anything major then is what I'm hearing you say. Uh. <laughs> also chairing a committee um, and two huge bills. I mean, you have just described a volume of work that is large and we appreciate you being on here and talking about it and just what a difference this would make for Minnesotans if these two bills passed. So we appreciate you being on here and tackling this amongst other things. So now to just lighten it up a bit after all of this, uh, Representative Flesh, we ask everybody here, what is something that maybe a fun fact about yourself, something people might not know? Um, give the listeners a little something here. Okay. Well, for so so one thing some people know about me now, but, but didn't because it kind of got lost in the shuffle of history is I was in seminary. I was going to be a Catholic priest. Um, for three years, I studied with the Redemptorist Order. And... Uh, <laughs> yeah, I'm still thinking about it, actually. Um, that's not true. I'm not. But I took a year off back in 1992, uh, and I'm still on my year off. So we'll see what happens when I'm off my year off. But, uh, yeah, I was going to be a priest, and, and I, I, was, I was really inspired by the, uh, the men in that profession who, who just lived to serve their community. That's all they did. That was like it. No other complications and a very simple life. And all I did was the service. And I thought it was really kind of cool. Um, so yeah, that's where I learned Latin. Yeah. So I still speak a little bit of Latin, but, um, la la la. Yeah, the that, la 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 part. Translates. I can still read the monuments in Rome, which is handy if I go there. That's, that's a good fun fact. Uh, Representative Lesh, did you know that Representative Olson shares your fun fact, that she was also uh, an attempted seminarian? I wasn't attempted. I have a degree. <laughs> <laughs> I am not ordained, but I did get through on three attempts. I, I passed my Bible proficiency exam. So. <laughs> Excellent. <laughs> Not ordained. That was by. <laughs> so I, I guess I'm the odd, odd one out here that uh, you are. Didn't even attempt the You're ordination. Not, we're not going to show you the secret handshake. Yeah. Okay. That, that's all right. <laughs> well, we really appreciate you being here, and uh, thanks for all your work. Thank you, listen, Jamie. So that's our episode of uh, the podcast, and we've uh, come to you every week. We're hoping to come back to you next week as well. We're over the halfway hump for the session, and so we've got a lot of action coming up in the session in the weeks to come. So stay tuned.